Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Before we get to the rest of this episode, I want to say a few quick words about Tim Mack, a very talented investigative correspondent over at National Public Radio. Fever Dreams listeners may remember Tim as someone who we've had on this podcast recently when we interviewed him when his scoop-heavy book on the NRA first came out. Full disclosure, Tim is a Daily Beast alumnus. Anybody who has access to Google or a search engine could figure that out. He worked here a few years prior to joining NPR. I also used to live in the same house as Tim, and he was best man at my wedding. So it's not like I'm coming at this as an entirely neutral bystander. Having said that, if you listen to NPR regularly nowadays, or if you've been following Tim on Twitter.com, you would have noticed that for the past couple of weeks, he has been on the ground with the NPR team working in and traveling around Ukraine covering the brutal Russian invasion and ongoing campaign of atrocity in that country. There are certainly a lot of people, both Ukrainian and otherwise, in that nation today who need a good deal of watching over and who are doing their very best to stay safe and help others as the country gets ripped apart by a maladjusted, bloodlusting foreign despot. But since we obviously have a, an intensely personal affection for Tim Mack over here at Fever Dreams, I'm going to take what little time we have during this episode's opening moments to say... I think I speak on behalf of everyone within the Daily Beast family and diaspora when I say to Tim, if you're listening, that we are with you, you are constantly in our thoughts and prayers, and we love you. Keep kicking ass out there, Tim Mack. Say hello to everyone else on your team for me, and we will see you when you're back stateside, whenever that may be. For Fever Dreams listeners, I highly encourage you to listen to his reporting and dispatches from the war zone, which are all over NPR nowadays. And of course, follow him on Twitter.com at Tim K. Mack. He's doing some amazing, unique work out there these days, which I don't have time to get into too deeply at the moment. But what I can say is that you'd be doing yourself a major disservice by not checking it out. Stay safe and healthy and keep up the great reporting, Tim. We'll talk to you soon. Kelly, since I've been going on about this for a little while now, have you been following our dear friend Tim Mack's work as he's been out in the field having a NPR subsidized holiday out in Ukraine? I hear it's very pleasant there this time of year. No, Tim's work has been just phenomenal. I mean, both informative, but also just the care that he brings to his reporting and the people he's talking to and the way he illuminates his interviews he does. It strikes me that Tim, I think, is a trained medic. He really understands. Yes, he was in the army while also being in NPR. So He's not someone who's in there and just kind of I don't know, just passively commenting. He is, you can tell, just cares so much for the people he's covering and actually really knows his shit. So it's just an absolute must follow. Oh, absolutely. And also as a little treat on top of all the horror and humanity that he's covering right now, he also has a penchant for tweeting out when he can threads about the pets of wartime who he's been encountering throughout Ukraine, whether they are cats or dogs or I think maybe a ferret or a bunny at some point, like whether it's a civilian fighter who is trying to go to stick it to Putin's forces, who has like a loyal cat or a dog hanging around them while they're holding a submachine gun or whatever, or whether it's like an abandoned dog who became a stray during the invasion who's now in a kennel or something. It's, I don't know if heartwarming is the right, but there's still a lot of beauty and pet-related cuteness going on in Ukraine, even as Vladimir Putin tries to tear it asunder. 
Okay, so moving on to something that actually does have quite a bit to do with the war currently going on in Ukraine. Kelly Weil, will you catch up over the weekend about what our favorite former president, Donald Trump, was telling donors? This was actually something that he managed to force, not even force, probably playfully spray out of his mouth to a room full of Republican donors about, I guess, what he would be doing right now if he were still leader of the free world during this Ukraine crisis? Yeah. And just an aside before I get into this quote, which is just phenomenal, there has been this proliferation of people online who are spectating the war from the opposite side of the world and saying what they would do if they were Rambo and they had a submachine gun and a cool set of night vision goggles. Obviously, people who never saw the first Rambo, which was in many ways about the trauma of war. But if we know anything about Trump, he's kind of a supercuts guy where he'll watch the mashups of the violent scenes on YouTube. But let's get to this quote because it's something. This is courtesy of the Washington Post from this past weekend. Trump mused to donors that we should take our F-22 planes and, quote, put the Chinese flag on them and bomb the shit out, end quote, of Russia, quote. And then we say China did it. We didn't do it. China did it. And then they start fighting with each other and we sit back and watch. And the whole audience got up and clapped. Oh, my God. <laughs> the not another teen movie slow clap. <laughs> it's like there are so many things you could do. And part of me just wants to be like really pedantic here and say that we're the only country, I think, with F-22s or at least they're in American <laughs> planes. So if you're going to zoom in far enough to see what a fake Chinese flag like painted on it, you know, the paint dripping off the side because it's so fresh, you're going to see that this is an American plane bombing Russia for an understandable reason. But I mean, just the bloodlust of that statement. I mean, it is no exaggeration to say that we're really trying to avoid nuclear war here. This is his pitch to GOP donors about how he might start World War III if he had the chance. But it would be so epic the way he would do it. Right. And also it would be with these false flags and mass murder. And somehow nobody would figure out that the racist game show host in the White House was behind it. Somehow he would slip that one past both the Chinese, the Russians, and God knows how many other intelligence services all over the world. So people pointed out that days before Trump said this, this sounded similar to a version that Sean Hannity said, I think, on Hannity's radio show. It was kind of similar. It wasn't exactly the same, which fine. I get it. Hannity is often in Donald Trump's ear before, during his presidency, and after his presidency. So it wouldn't be the most shocking thing to speculate about that. But the first thing that came to my mind was the shit that was coming out of Trump's mouth at that point sounded a lot like a certain James Bond movie. I think it was the second one to star Pierce Brosnan as <laughs> Bond. Kelly, are you as much of a fan as I am of the movie Tomorrow Never Dies? No, I can't say that I am, but it's also because I think as we've discussed in here, I haven't seen a movie. I need the recap. <laughs> okay, you haven't seen Tomorrow Never Dies? No. Okay. It's about this Bond villain played by Jonathan Price, amazing actor. He's spectacled in it, kind of looks like a really tyrannical, warmongering media Steve Jobs, and basically seems like it's modeled on Rupert Murdoch, basically. So the media is the villain in this Bond movie. That's why it's probably one of my favorite cheesy James Bond flicks. So his deal is the plot twist, spoiler alert, that comes later in the movie about why he's doing all this is because he wants access to something like cable distribution rights in China or something like that so he can get massive <laughs> ratings for his media mogul self. And what he's been doing is quietly engineering behind the scenes a bunch of false flags between China and the UK to try to start World War III between the British and the Chinese to make them think that the other one is attacking the other violently and killing each other's men and women in uniform. But really, he, fake Rupert Murdoch, is orchestrating this behind the scenes. I love it that this is the Hollywood version of how this story plays out. And I think even if, if I were to write this in a vacuum, I would say, yeah, the media trying to sell a war because it's profitable. No, in fact, here we are, reporters, like, begging people to slam on the brakes, begging the ex-president to not pull these. I mean, you say false flags, that's exactly what it is. It's absolutely bizarre to be in this situation where the people with institutional power are the ones who want to fly off the handle. Right. 
And maybe I'm being too cute about this, but this particular Bond villain who we're talking about is TV ratings obsessed. He's caught in a loveless marriage, and he's willing to do false flags and mass murder for the sake of his own ego. I don't want to say that sounds exactly like former <laughs> President Trump, but it sounds exactly like former President Trump. Good evening. Tonight's broadcast was supposed to be a celebration, marking the completion of the Carver Global Satellite Network. But as you're well aware, a terrible conflict looms tonight in the South China Sea, which, unchecked, has the potential to destroy every human being on Earth. I don't know if Trump got the idea from that movie, but it wouldn't be the first time he got a bad idea by interpreting a movie incorrectly. And we'll get into that in a moment. But this is the stuff that Trump thinks you can get away with as commander in chief in real life which, given everything he proposed during his four years in office, is not the most shocking thing in the world. But motherfucker, it's hard not to come to the conclusion that it is a tiny blessing from on high that this fucking guy with that brain isn't president during a moment like this, during this kind of international crisis. Absolutely. If you cast your brain back to January 2020, which is almost an in incomprehensible distance for me, it's pre-COVID, but it's when we were really worried that we were going to stumble backwards into war with Iran. And that was over the assassination of General Qasem Soleimani. And some of the reporting that came out after that I believe it was a drone strike on him, was that Trump had been offered an array of options, sort of the buffet from least spicy to most spicy action they could take against this guy. And he went for the flame and hot Doritos version where he's like, yep, we're going to drone strike this guy. We're going to drop a bomb on his caravan and kill him and really set off quite potentially destabilizing international events. And when you start talking about that with I'm sorry, but an even more powerful, nuclear-armed, despotic ruler, we're just, like you said, we're very, very lucky that we escaped a situation like that in January 2020, and that Trump is not at the steering wheel right now. Right. And just to respond to any potential nerdy, suited-up Republican skeptics who might say, oh, he was just saying that to audience donors, he's like a bad stand-up comic, just trying a new laugh line, or whatever. To people who think that if he had won the 2020 presidential election, and if he were sitting in the Oval Office right now, to people who think that in that situation, Trump would not actually be floating this to senior administration and defense officials. I want to just rewind the clock a little bit to not just the reporting via friend of the pod, Jonathan Swan over at Axios, that during the middle of the Trump presidency, he floated the idea, including in national security meetings, the idea of nuking hurricanes and bombing hurricanes what? to stop them from reaching <laughs> America's shores. It wasn't just that. Something else that we reported over at the Daily Beast around that time, I think that didn't get that much attention because I think it was buried in a different story, unfortunately, is I talked to a number of people who were in the room during the Trump presidency when he would actually ask senior officials if they were aware of this scientific, quote unquote, scientific theory that China had the technology to create hurricanes and fling them at America. And if this if this constituted an act of war, this is something President Trump brought up multiple times while sitting in the White House to just these administration officials who I'm not giving them any credit for morals or anything. But these fuckers just had to sit there and take it and be like, <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll look into that, sir. It's incredible because I know Americans mocked Chavez for saying that the U.S. had an earthquake gun, which is ridiculous. And it's like, ah, listen to that moron. No, we have our own moron who I guess is saying effectively the same thing. Right, right. China with the hurricane gun. Wouldn't that be such a cool weapon? <laughs> you would need no <laughs> other like act or weapon of war. Just like point the Nerf gun that fires off hurricanes at, I don't know, like Tripoli or something. Yeah, no, it's incredible because I remember a few years ago, there was like some agency saying, like putting out a statement being like, guys, please don't fire your guns into the hurricane that's approaching. I think that was at Florida. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah, we get into uh, some Florida antics later in this pod, I think. But for a, a Florida man himself, but unfortunately a president to suggest dropping an even bigger weapon into a hurricane is quite remarkable. 
Okay, moving on now. We gotta talk about the latest ongoings of the convoy chaos. I know the trucker stuff and the convoy stuff has drifted a little bit to the back of the pages given with the advent of this incredibly inhumane and destructive war going on in Ukraine. But, Kelly Weil, you have been keeping up with the still kind of whimpering and shambolic excesses that continue to this day on this topic. Refresh my memory a little bit about what the hell is going on right now and how far the convoy has managed to take it. Absolutely. So first of all, to your point that it's fallen out of the news a little bit, they are livid about that. They are extremely jealous that Ukraine is stealing the spotlight for what would have been, I'm sure, a big, beautiful convoy. Give us a very quick rundown of what this is in case everybody's attention span is as short as ours. Absolutely. So for a few weeks now, we've been following this effort to launch a trucker convoy, much like Canadian drivers did, which surrounded Ottawa, Canada. They're trying to do the same thing in the U.S. and to park these trucks in D.C. and immobilize it. This weekend, the convoy finally arrived in D.C. after starting off in California a couple weeks ago. But it was pretty swiftly defeated by D.C.'s everyday traffic, which is, I think, worse (laughs) hell than any political actor could have concocted on their own. As a D.C. native, I just have to say, this is one of the many, many, many reasons I get so angry when people start shitting over my beloved Washington, D.C. It's like the Amityville Horror House, except (laughs) for good when it comes to moments like these. It's like a castle with this big moat and scary defense system. Like it can just deploy that just by regular rush hour traffic, which I respect. I want to read a brief aside from Zach Patrizzo. He's our Daily Beast convoy whisperer on the ground. He has been covering this convoy in real life. And here's what he has to say about how the convoy fell apart on Monday morning. After taking a single lap around the Beltway on Monday afternoon, the so-called People's Convoy once again failed at its goal of being a, quote, huge pain for the D.C. metro area. After their short-lived Sunday effort failed, on Monday morning, the anti-vaccine mandate trucker convoy's organizer, Brian Bass, pledged to escalate the group's tactics, calling on truckers to take up two entire beltway lanes. But that heightened plan didn't come to fruition. Instead, the truckers in a bevy of upside-down American flag-bearing support vehicles quickly became separated for the second day in a row. Adding insult to injury, near the Temple Hills and Landover exits, both a semi-truck and a pickup truck in the convoy had broken down. So this is not a well-oiled machine running here. And I think part of that is has to do with the whole convoy's premise, which is really half-baked. So in Canada, participants in their Ottawa convoy at least claimed to have a political motive. They said they were protesting a vaccine mandate for international truckers. And now most of those international truckers, some 90% were vaccinated and most of the Canadian convoy did not consist of those truckers. So It was a flimsy pretense, but a pretense nonetheless. Here in the U.S., where there's no mask mandate at all, their motive is even more confusing, with some drivers calling out very unbelievable reasons for why they're driving. Okay, so am I correct in assuming that none of them were just straight up saying it's like, oh, I love it when the horn goes honk and and when the truck goes vroom? (laughs) You know what? That would be reason enough for me. You want to hit the road with your buddies and go beep, beep. It's understandable. Again, I got a toddler. I know how trucks work. And (laughs) it's a more respectable political motivation and motive than anything else I've heard out of any of these guys, whether Canadian or American. (laughs) mobilize the honk block. Uh, No, here is an incredible quote that journalist Sandy Bacham got this weekend where she's been covering the convoy. She says, I asked a trucker from Georgia why he was here. And he said, quote, I'm here for the kids and we need to find out if Joe Biden is a pedophile and we have to do something about it. That's why I'm here. On the level, on the level, definitely a motivated voter and activist who needs to be paid attention to and treated (laughs) as if they're munching on hash browns in a diner somewhere in rural Wisconsin. Totally. When people say that, oh, QAnon's not a real thing that people believe in anymore, it's not a guiding principle in some people's politics. I mean, that right there is pure Q. The guy probably just doesn't know the name of it. And so it is absolutely a motivating impulse for these people. It's like when people try to argue that Pizzagate is over. No, it just morphed. Exactly. It's never left us. You are stuck in traffic behind a semi-driver who believes he's going to take out Comet Ping Pong Pizza. It's the same goddamn thing. 
Okay, so as far as you can tell, Kelly, this was a massive flop for anyone who is trying to bring Washington, D.C. to a standstill for the sake of trying to arrest the alleged pedophile Joe Biden. That's right. This exercise was really embarrassing, I think. And even so, part of the reason we're still keeping an eye on it is it's worth understanding this as a right-wing networking exercise, which might have been more successful than their actual efforts to shut down D.C. So while this group was trying to pull this whole shit show together— Convoy supporters made a series of Facebook groups and Telegram channels and fundraising pools that now they can mobilize for other causes. And one thing that I want to underscore here is that January 6th didn't come out of nowhere. It actually happened after multiple lesser known D.C. rallies that, again, we could kind of point and laugh at because they were walking around in kilts in the cold. Really weird. But a lot of the same rally attendees. So I think it's possible that we can mock the chaos and also recognize that the right is throwing everything in the wall right now and just seeing what sticks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If this ends up being a dress rehearsal for something more successful, shall we say, or something that cannot be so easily ignored or or simply laughed off, I wouldn't be surprised at all. So stay tuned, I guess. And on that note, Kelly Weil, tell us who we have on tap for this week's interview. This week, we are speaking with Christopher Mathias, a reporter at Huffington Post, where he covers the far right. Chris was one of the only journalists on the ground at the far right AFPAC conference last month, and he has some wild tales to tell. Stick around. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We're joined now by Christopher Mathias, a reporter at HuffPost, where he spent years digging into the far right. Chris covers the ties between fringe extremists and the elected officials who love them. You can follow him on Twitter at Let's Go Mathias and read his work at HuffPost. Chris, welcome to the pod. Oh, thanks so much for having me, guys. It's an honor. First hard-hitting question I got to ask you. Let's Go Matthias. Does that predate Let's Go Brandon, or did you change that after the advent of that? No, I was way ahead of the times with that one. Way ahead of Let's Go Brandon. It was like a dumb college soccer joke that ended up being my Twitter handle like 15 years ago, and now it's just followed me for my whole career. Fever Dreams listeners don't listen to him. He's trying to cover up the fact that it was changed conspicuously <laughs> late last year. It's like Ben Smith who changes his Twitter handle for every publication he goes to. He's Chris is just updating for every every right-wing meme. (laughs) It's why until like 2015, it was Benghazi Chris. Yes, exactly. (laughs) That's when I really took off. Benghazi Chris was my best one. (laughs) So Chris, in considerably more serious news, we've been talking for the past couple weeks on this pod about AFPAC, but to my knowledge, you're maybe the only journalist who got into that conference, which of course is a white nationalist conference held last month in Orlando. Can you Tell us how you got in and how you tracked this conference down. Sure. Yeah. So I guess technically I got kicked out of the conference. I don't know if I got in. (laughs) And also, to be fair, weren't there a bunch of other journalists there? It's just that some of them happen to be like anime Nazis or something. Yeah, huge anime Nazi contingent of journalists. As far as allegedly respectable outlets like HuffPost, I think we're maybe the only one to get there. But basically, like... I don't know how much you guys have talked about AFPAC before and like the Groybers and whatnot, but they basically hold this kind of parallel antagonistic conference in conjunction with CPAC. And they hold it at a secret location so that basically the media and anti-fascists can't pressure the hotel or the venue to cancel on them ahead of time because it'd be a bad 
look if it was found out that the Marriott was hosting a bunch of Groivers. So they always kind of withhold the real location until the very last minute. And I had been struggling all week ahead of AFPAC to try to figure out where it was. We knew it was in Orlando. We knew it was going to be on Friday, February 25th. But Nick Fuentes and his crew were keeping the details really tight to the chest. And it wasn't until about a a few hours before the conference started that we caught a break. Someone got sloppy. This uh, troll named Jonathan Lee Riches, who I've run across before at Stop the Steel Rallies, but he posted a series of selfies to Twitter. One was of him and Michelle Malkin, the anti-immigrant activist who has aligned herself with the Grapers and who once wrote a book called In Defense of Interment about Japanese internment. Lovely. <laughs> I know I shouldn't say broad, kind of weird things like this, but I wish as a fellow Asian American that Asian Americans could disown her. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, her trajectory, we could, that's a deserves like an hour of its own. I, her trajectory is so fascinating. Like she was a CPAC speaker. She was on the main stage at CPAC two years ago. She was a, a regular Fox News person. Like, yeah, she was as mainstream as Ann Coulter was at the time. Yeah, exactly. And it's also like you think about how mainstream she was in spite of, or maybe because of writing a book, defending Japanese internment and defending like racial profiling. At any rate, so Jonathan Lee Riches posted this selfie with Michelle Malkin, and it was in a hotel lobby. And if you looked in the back, and by the way, I need to credit Jared Holt, who's a mutual friend of ours, I'm sure. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod, who is a fabulous right-wing extremism researcher, who was also going crazy trying to figure out where AFBAC was going to be. At any rate, he looked at this photo and noticed in the very back a blurry doormat. And on that doormat, he was able to see a Marriott logo. But there are still like 10 Marriott's in Orlando. So fortunately, Jonathan Lee Riches posted another selfie, this one with Gavin McGinnis, the founder or leader of Proud Boys. And this one showed some a very particular tile pattern on the floor. So Jared Holt started scrolling through galleries, photo galleries of Marriott hotels in Orlando, and eventually found the Marriott Hotel, was it Marriott World Center something in Orlando. So I rushed over and when I arrived, it was this massive conference center and I could see a bunch of white guys in suits like doing security with like a security wand, like wanding down other white guys in suits. Someone was vaping. And then there's also there's two sheriff's deputies there like kind of guarding the event, which I thought was interesting. But I like nodded up the sheriff's deputies, walked over to the Groypers and tried to get into the conference, was told by a crew of like five or six of them that I would not be getting in. And one of the saddest parts was the first guy I actually talked to to see if I could get in, like he must have been, he was a baby. He was like probably, I don't know, he must have been 18. And these guys are so young. That's like what's partially so upsetting about it. Like there is something kind of messed up and cultic about it. I'm not going to absolve someone's guilt for participating in this, but these guys are so young. It's disgusting. It's so disturbing. And I think like that's actually one of like kind of the Nick Fuentes is only 23 and he's started this whole thing that's attracting like major far right names. And yeah, it does feel a little like culty and yeah, you can't help but feel a little, I felt sorry for this kid a little, even though he's hanging out with the worst people in the world. But at any rate, I tried to get in, was not allowed in. I tried to, as I walked away, I tried to interview a couple arriving attendees as I was trying to interview them, uh, like the Groiber security guy yelled at them not to talk to me and then told me to leave. And I went to start talking to the sheriff's deputies. Well, one of the guys who you spoke to on the scene, if I recall correctly, was Tom Homan. Is that correct? Not on the scene. Not on the scene. That came later. Gotcha. Well, explain where and when in a second. But just for our listeners who might have forgotten, he's the opposite of a nobody. He was a director of ICE under then-President Trump. What did he have to do with your long weekend trying to get into a white nationalist conference? Right, yeah. So I ended up, because I couldn't get into the actual conference, I hung around for a bit, but I ended up watching the live stream. And in the live stream, there was kind of a promo reel at the beginning. And in that promo reel, you it basically showed all of the featured speakers and mystery speakers. So you had Paul Gosar, Steve King, Janice McGeehan, who's the lieutenant governor of Idaho, Joe Arpaio, you know, the former sheriff of Maricopa County. All these people were showing up. Included in that promo reel was Tom Homan, like you said, the former director of ICE. So we were kind of freaking out when we saw that in the promo reel because like, holy shit, is 
Tom Homan going to speak at this Nazi conference right now? And then when Nick Fuentes finally got up and introduced Ernst Engel, got the conference going, he apologized because he said Tom Homan had showed up but had had a family emergency and had had to leave. So later that week, and by the way, after he apologized for Tom Homan not showing up, he introduced Marjorie Taylor Greene, which I'm sure we'll get to in a bit. But later that week, I called Tom Homan to confirm these details. Like, did you actually show up to the White Nationalist Conference? And yeah, he admitted to it. He It was one of the most bizarre conversations in my life. He basically said the story he told was that his assistant arranged the appearance and that they turned up to the hotel. They were sitting at the table waiting for it to start. And he was looking over the agenda and decided it would be a good idea to Google Fuentes' name before the conference started. (laughs) I love to do that after I've flown to Orlando and booked a hotel. Although maybe I'll Google this guy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I think he was there for CPAC and just like happened to, you know, dip over (laughs) to AFPAC. But by the way, me and my editor like to imagine this whole scene to the Kirby Enthusiasm music. (laughs) But he Googles Fuentes' name. And what he tells me is he sees like the phrase white nationalist associated with Fuentes' name everywhere. But he's a little doubtful of his description. He's not sure if it's really true because he says that he himself has been unfairly tarred as a racist. Or as like a white nationalist or something like that. Yeah, or as a white nationalist. Because if you know all of the ethnic cleansing that the Trump administration did and wanted to do. But these are mere details. Mere details. And so... What did disturb him was that he came across an article where it had mentioned some of Fuentes' posts about Russia and like cheering on Russia. I think it was probably like an article about the broader far right cheering on Putin. But at any rate, that's what disturbed him. So that's what caused him to get up and leave. And so during this conversation, when we finished the conversation, I asked, does it give you pause or does it inspire any self-reflection that someone like Nick Fuentes would want you at their conference? And Homan kind of paused for a minute and was just like, I don't know his intentions. I'm not a racist, though. I just like secure borders. And then he hung up. And then a few minutes later, he called me back. And he was like, I just want to make sure you understand something. Basically, just make a clarification. It was not the clarification I was expecting. What he said was about Fuentes and the Grovers. He said, I'm not saying this is a bad group. I'm saying that I don't know. (laughs) It takes eight milliseconds of Googling to figure out whether you are for or against what this group is for. And I love that that came after consideration, too. Like people sometimes, (laughs) sometimes you do the ambush call and you get a good quote. But this is like someone who thought about it and is like, I know what I'm going to tell the media. Oh, absolutely. And also, I had emailed him earlier in the week. Like, he knew this story was coming, and I could tell he was a little nervous about it. So, like, he had definitely had ample time to do his research. And, and also, like, this happened, like, the Southern Property Law Center. I'm not sure Homan is an avid reader of the Southern Property Law Center, but they had just published their big extremist profile on Fuentes, which I'm sure is probably one of the biggest number one hit on Google if you Google his name. Again, this motherfucker was running ice under President Trump. It's so remarkable. I mean, I think it's remarkable, like how, I mean, it's remarkable and simultaneously completely unremarkable because of course that's who's in charge of us. But it also is just crazy to talk to someone that's just so kind of unself-aware in a way. I mean, I know we're probably all jaded enough on this podcast that you could reasonably argue that the way that you could predict that Tom Homan would be invited to and almost actually speak at a gathering of white supremacists is because he spent a lot of time working at and speaking within an administration that was dominated by white supremacists. So the jump isn't that great of a leap there. But at the same time, I know he doesn't have the full force of the federal government's vetting behind him anymore now that he's not working in government. He or any like intern or 11-year-old assistant of his could have figured out in eight seconds that, okay, yeah, maybe don't even tentatively agree to speak at this thing. Yeah, precisely. It's baffling. It's an interesting mix of xenophobia mixed with just marauding stupidity. Yes, (laughs) yeah. But, you know, speaking of plausible deniability, you mentioned that the replacement speaker for him, the person introduced next, was Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I think has even more reason not to should have even more reason not to be seen at this kind of thing. But she's actually in government. (laughs) Right. And when she was questioned about this after, she said, oh, I don't know Nick Fuentes' views. I mean, Chris, can you just sort of make clear, like, how obvious the racism is at these events? Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, so Marjorie Taylor Greene was the first 
speaker that was introduced. And there's an interesting thing that I actually didn't see reported much anywhere. But if you watch the live stream, when Nick Fuentes is introducing Marjorie Taylor Greene, he says how it came about. And he says that Milo Yiannopoulos arranged Marjorie Taylor Greene <laughs> to come to Groyper. So he thanks Milo because I think Milo was in the audience. But yeah, I mean, like in his introduction, Nick Fuentes said the secret, he's basically describing what he saw as the success of the Groypers. And he said, our secret sauce is young white men and to like to great cheers. And then at one point, you know, they broke out chanting Putin, Putin, Putin. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, presumably, like she was on stage a couple minutes later was just was there. She saw all this. So she knew who she was speaking to. She, there's no way she can claim ignorance with that. And I mean, and just in general, like as we've talked about, like a cursory Google search will turn up some of the horrific stuff that Nick Fuentes has said. He's a Holocaust denier. He marched um, at Unite the Right in Charlottesville in 2017. And I mean, he's literally said every awful thing. Well, since we've been diving into AFPAC, quite a bit on this podcast. One other thing I want you to get into the weeds on at least a little bit is how, look, if you're comparing this to something like the granddaddy CPAC, the marquee <laughs> speaker at CPAC nowadays is, of course, Donald Trump, who is no stranger to making calls to violence or political violence in public. That's just a matter of public record, not just vis-a-vis -vis the January 6th riot, but going back years. So you have that, but at the same time, there is sort of a squeamishness that your average CPAC speaker would have with explicitly endorsing political violence in sort of a rancidly ostentatious way. When you're looking at something like your average AFPAC speaker, what is the divide? there? What is the difference in tone and substance when we're talking about speakers' explicit calls to not just action, but throw a punch, grab yourself a Molotov cocktail, either figuratively or perhaps even literally? Yeah, a great question. So to kind of compare and contrast, like a big part of Fuentes' speech at AFPAC was talking about how awesome January 6th was, that there are some people in the audience were arrested for their involvement in January 6th at AFPAC. So Faith Alaska was there, this guy is iconic, who was arrested for like damaging and stealing media equipment on January 6th was there. So he basically was very upfront about the fact that January 6th was dope, like he loved it. At CPAC, you found people trying to downplay or absolve themselves a little bit. So the conspiracy theories were much more prominent there. It was funny, the first two people I interviewed at CPAC were January 6th rally attendees. And basically, even though they were there, and even though they were in this mass of people, they were convinced that the people that actually started the violence that day were Antifa or secret FBI agents or were paid by the Democrats. There was just kind of this like abiding faith that Trump supporters wouldn't do that. And then on the other hand, they've developed this whole narrative around people who are have been arrested and are still in jail, that they are political prisoners. Right. It's the if I did it mentality of political violence in America. That's such a good way to put it. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So the only like kind of times you heard main CPAC speakers address January 6th was kind of in that context. So I think their sole kind of panel or speech devoted to January 6th, which is crazy when you think about it, considering it's one of the most historic days in American history that occurred like a year ago, was a speech by Julie Kelly, who has a book out about the kind of a conspiratorial book out about January 6th. I think that was like kind of one of the most disturbing aspects of the whole weekend was just kind of this refusal to acknowledge this great act of political violence, which to my mind kind of sets the stage for something worse. So Chris, while we have you here, I wanted to talk about other Florida extremism that you've recently covered because you have a really good recent profile of Brevard County in Florida, where it's something like at least seven residents have been arrested on Capitol riot charges. I kind of wanted to dive into that and ask you what exactly it is that you found in Brevard County and what makes it so ominous with regard to this kind of right-wing, I don't know, incremental extremism that you're documenting. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, so basically a couple months ago, we did a story on Brevard County, Florida, which I think has seven, like you said, people arrested. So it's one of the highest concentrations of capital riders arrested in the country, kind of like by per capita population. And by the way, neighboring Orange County in Orlando also has like eight or nine people arrested. So I think someone referred to Central Florida as like the 
cradle of the insurrection, which I thought was interesting. But yeah, so I did a story trying to look into what maybe social conditions were driving this kind of incremental extremism, like you said, Kelly. And I think one of the more compelling theories around extremism and participation in January 6th around the country was a study by Richard Pape at the University of Chicago, basically showing that it was driven by white grievance and that basically in areas with that are diversifying, they tended to send more people to January 6th. So that's one theory. What I found when I kind of dug down into what was happening in Brevard was that there is like a particularly cruel group of MAGA politicians there who are very extreme and who attack their political enemies like ruthlessly. And there is like a county commissioner, there's a extremist sheriff, kind of like the Joe Arpaio model, who is like a constitutional sheriff. And there's a state senator whose name I'm blanking on right now. But basically they like are very extreme and they have a group of very loyal supporters that they can basically sick on their political enemies. And I think as for kind of like the incremental extremism and like what extremism looks like in the year since January 6th, I think we're going to see a lot more like localized MAGA violence like this. School board takeovers and town council takeovers and, and stuff like that. I have a feeling like that's where it's going to get. So give us a little taste of what the socioeconomic makeup is of Brevard County. Like if you actually travel there, what does it look like? What does it feel like? How comfortable is this base of MAGA voters in that county? So it went to Trump, but actually not by like all that much, like forget the exact percentages, but this is something Richard Pape found as well. Like it wasn't necessarily like the reddest county that sent people to the Capitol. It was actually places that were red, but like more like on the purple end of the spectrum of red. And basically they had some proximity to a large progressive city in this case, like Orlando. So yeah, Brevard County is the Space Coast. It's where the Kennedy Center is. It's where SpaceX is. So it actually has like a large population of like engineers and like educated people. I think Brevard County is 74% white, which is in a, like about an 11% drop from a decade earlier. And like the Latino population has shot up in the last 10 years. So I think that was one of the kind of prevailing theories about why this place sent so many people to the capital. Yeah, Chris, I think I read maybe if not the same study, then it's similar one about how a lot of capital rioters came from areas that were predominantly red, but yes, in proximity to bluer districts. And it's almost like that feeling of threat or imminent conflict, either political conflict or people seeing their neighborhoods diversify. It's like it sets off some weird primal anger in some people. And just before you go, you know, you kind of tease that there's almost some vigilantism going on in Brevard, or at least very hyperactive political activists there. Can you explain what that looks like in real world terms for people who get targeted? Yeah. So one of the people I talked to, two of the people I talked to, one is a local kind of blogger, Democratic operative named Robert Burns. And the other one was a school board member, a Democratic school board member named Jennifer Jenkins. And this is fascinating, actually. So Jennifer Jenkins won the school board seat and she ousted this person named Tina Deskovich and won by like 10 points. Tina Deskovich then launched a group called Moms for Liberty, which I'm sure you guys are aware of, mm-hmm. has been sweeping the country and harassing school boards over mask mandates and trans and like anti-trans stuff. If I were to think of the most annoying group you could possibly create in modern (laughs) American politics, in a vacuum, I would have been like Moms for Liberty. (laughs) There's nothing else that it would be. Like made in a lab. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They were at CPAC, by the way. I think they had a booth at CPAC. But people kind of with Moms for Liberty or connected to Moms for Liberty, really went after Jennifer Jenkins. They rallied outside her house. They screamed unforgivable things at her. They Someone coughed in her face to give her COVID. And maybe most egregiously, they called Child Protective Services on her and told Child Protective Services that she was abusing her child. So an agent showed up to her house, separated her from her child, and looked like basically inspected her child for burn marks that were not there. And then they also, so this county commissioner, whose name I'm blanking on right now, we're pretty sure, and I actually think this is a story in the Daily Beast that broke this, but that he started a website accusing Jennifer Jenkins and Robert Burns, this blogger I was talking about, of having an affair. And there's a whole website devoted to them having an affair together, in which there's like photos of them leaving a house together in the middle of the afternoon. I've talked to them, they were meeting about 
like filing a legal complaint against the like county commissioner for doing this to them, for like harassing them. And then basically he turned it into this like rat fucking website where he accuses them of of having an affair. And there's a lot of other weird shit that I think the sheriff has kind of gone after his political opponents in in nasty ways, like sent deputies to follow people in their car and stuff like that. So it's it's bad. Yeah. And damned if you do, damned if you don't really go and file a complaint against someone and they turn it into a weapon. That's extremely upsetting, Chris. And always love reading your coverage on pretty much that exact emotional tenor. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Chris. Thank you so much for being with us this week. Come back anytime. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. On this week's installment of our beloved recurring segment, Fresh Hell, Kelly Weil has been documenting the vast machinery of American right-wing dipshittery that is seems overpopulated, particularly this month, with people who cannot stop fantasizing about traveling to Ukraine and making everything so much worse for everyone involved. Kelly Wilde, give us a taste. <laughs> so, you know that most annoying kid in your ninth grade homeroom who said everyone needed to be nice to him because one day he was going to be a Navy SEAL? Yes. <laughs> I know roughly seven of those. Yeah. So... This is a fairly large block of people, but imagine a bunch of those guys in a room together, but with far-right ideologies and insistent that they are going to be war heroes in Ukraine. For which side? Ooh, ha ha ha. We're talking about the Ukrainian ones today, but there is certainly a good amount of Russia sympathy on the far right in the U.S. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Yeah. So there's a diverse sampling to choose from, but... Since Russia's invasion, Ukraine put out a call for foreign fighters abroad, and an interesting mix of Americans is taking them up on it, including people you might expect like combat veterans and Ukrainian Americans who feel a duty to go back and fight. But there's also this smaller segment of far-right war fetishists with no military experience, no Ukrainian language experience, who are treating this humanitarian crisis like it's a game of call of duty. And I mean, that is pretty disgusting in itself. A very good scholar on the far right notes this in MSNBC, and she says, this is a small segment of the people going to fight in Ukraine, but she notes that, quote, the conflict has clearly created an opportunity for extremists to recruit white supremacist foreign fighters who seek training in networks or seek to intensify their engagement to the cause in other ways. Far-right militia leaders in Europe have responded to the Russian invasion of Ukraine by raising funds online recruiting fighters, and planning travel to the front lines. So what does this look like in actual terms in the U.S.? I've spotted two instances of members of the Boogaloo movement, which I don't know if you remember this when It was this ultra-violent micro-movement popped up in like late 2019 and had a big presence at Black Lives Matter protests, which it said it was supporting, and it actually just made everything worse for everybody. Right. And supporting in the sense that there was that high-profile set of boogaloo killings where the point of it was to stage false flag murders. We were talking about Trump and false flags earlier to try to kick off a race war on American soil. So exactly what you would see in the Black Lives Matter charter. Absolutely. I mean, these are shameless opportunists, right, who will see any crisis as a way to just kick up some chaos and get what they hope is their violent Armageddon. And a number of these people now are salivating over the conflict in Ukraine. I've spotted two pretty well-known Boogaloo guys in the U.S. who are now crowdfunding to go to Ukraine and fight. And last I checked, they had raised around $3,000. I cannot stress how much better spent that money would be anywhere else in Ukraine, literally anywhere else. Or just doing literally anything else. Buy Beanie Babies, buy NFTs, buy (laughs) NFTs of the classic (laughs) 1990s Beanie Babies. Like, do anything else except put more thousands or hundreds of dollars into the pockets of these guys. Okay, who are these two guys? It's a Boogaloo leader in one in Virginia, one in Ohio. I don't know that they're especially well-known names, so I'm not even going to shout them out. But effectively, 
effectively, these are super inept morons who, best case scenario, make it to the front line and get in everyone's way. What would they even be armed with? (laughs) Oh my god, I don't even know. Nerf gun? Like, it's absolutely mind-blowing to me. Some of these guys have, shall we say, interesting interactions with the feds, and I am sure that their movements are being quite well tracked. I just would not want any compatriots on the front line there. And I frankly wouldn't want to be the person selling them guns stateside. Hypothetically, if you were in trouble with federal authorities because you were a part of some, I don't know, pseudo white supremacist movement, I mean, one way to jump bail or get the hell out of the country is to go to Ukraine. And then whenever you (laughs) fail and have to come back to face the music in America, you can just say, how could you be mad at me? I was going to try to help the people of Ukraine. (laughs) Right. I was being a freedom fighter. No, I mean, this is all just self-valorization, but there's something a bit more insidious to this. And I don't know if they realize it because they're feeding into this false premise for the attack on Ukraine. And in announcing the invasion, Putin falsely claimed that he was, quote, denazifying Ukraine. That is a ludicrous claim to make of a country where a Jewish man is the president. Right. They're Nazis in Russia. They're Nazis in the United States. There's Nazis in certain parts of the Middle East, like denazify a country. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> right. This is a banner moment for Nazis. You want to point at a country, you can find them. And I would say that is a domestic issue that, frankly, the U.S. and Russia can clean up their own houses before they use it as a pretense to invade a neighbor. Right. No more oil drilling until they denazify Alaska. (laughs) Fine. That actually aligns with a lot of my political goals anyway. (laughs) But this influx of interest and actual participation from the global far right in Ukraine really feeds into that narrative. It pays into this idea that there is a strong Nazi movement in Ukraine when, in fact, right now what's happening is this weird glorification of violence by the dumbest people you know in the U.S. who are arming up and fundraising and really just making a clout-chasing spectacle of this whole crisis. So they claim they're going over there to denazify the country. That's what these idiots are claiming that they want to go do. That is correct. It's sending Nazis to the anti-Nazi fight, apparently. Well, I think one of the better outcomes of this would be, as opposed to just nothing happening, which is hopefully where this is all headed, is that they are just grifting. I hope that they just, it would be morally far superior to the hypothetical we're talking about right now if they just took that money and went to Vegas, went over and tried to denazify Vegas. And by denazify, I mean, just hit the slots. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's my new de-escalation program, right? Is they've got Nazi money, just gamble it away. Find a struggling casino. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.